No? There we go. That's a little bit better. I didn't hear myself. I should hear myself. It's great to have you here with us this morning. Thank you, Tim, uh, for uh, making that a meaningful time for the families who are here, as well as reminding all of us of the role and the window of time that God gives us to pour into their lives. Before we jump into the message this morning, for those of you that are uh, regularly a part of our church, I want to give you uh, an important announcement of some things that are coming, something that is going to be taking place. Um, especially for those of you that come in first, that come into second service, you on a regular basis are faced with the challenge of sometimes finding a parking spot. And uh, we want to address that issue. It's been a challenge since we moved into, the, into this building, but it's time for us to do something different about that. So what we're in the process of doing is we want to create space for your neighbor and your friend. We want so that when you invite a neighbor, when you invite a friend to come here, you know that there will be a space for them. So what does that mean? Well, what we're going to be doing is we're going to add 50 additional parking spaces, 50 additional spaces, and those spaces will be out in the grass where sometimes you have to go and park when there's not enough room in the rest of the area. So what will that require of us? Well, the cost for that is $175,000. That's all the, that's fully paid with the lighting that's in the curbing and that's required large retention pond out there as well. The good news about this project is because of your generosity last year, our elders have designated from our surplus $99,000 towards that project. So you can see we are more than halfway there, and we only need $76,000 to finish up that project. Now, this project is different than all the other projects. The other projects, we said as the money comes in, we'll, do the pro we'll, we'll move forward. As the money comes in, we'll move forward. This one we have to handle differently. Because as soon as we put the first shovel in the ground, we sign a contract with the township saying we will have this completed and fully done within one year or they will bill us and they'll do it at their cost and we have to pay them. We don't want to have to do that. And so you can see we're more than halfway there and so we're excited about the possibility of making this a reality. Our goal would be this fall to get the, um, all, the, land, all the, the work done on the property, uh, the stone basin and the base coat down, and then to finish it with the lighting, all of that would be done next spring. So our goal is to get it in before the bad weather. That's really what we're, we're hopeful and praying that we will be able to accomplish. But there's a second part to the parking challenge, and that's sometimes getting from your car into the building as you're navigating people and you're navigating vehicles, all those other things that are going on. So the phase two of this project is steps from the lot up top, uh, retaining walls, sidewalks around the entire building, and from all the parking lots to get you into the building without having to walk in the parking lots themselves. And so that's phase two of the project, and that part will cost us $70,000 to finish that as well. And again, now this part of the project, as the money comes in, we'll be able to do it. The first one, we have to have it done within a year. This one, as the money comes in, we'll be able to complete that project. Randy Fox will be leading the project for us. Uh, Randy has led all the other projects, done a fabulous job at that. He will be out in the lobby answering questions, and uh, there's some prints out there you can look at if you have questions about that um, after this service. Um, if you want to give towards this, uh, the way you can do that is you can give online at cocalico.church. Uh, you can also give via check. Uh, the offering boxes are in the back and out in the lobby, and you can designate that building fund. And so we're excited about this new opportunity to give us a little bit more space. 
uh, so that you can invite your neighbors and invite your friends. Uh, this Christmas Eve, as many of you know, if you were here last year Christmas Eve, we have three services that are mostly full. We're planning four services at Christmas Eve, so we want plenty of space to bring all of our neighbors and friends to hear the amazing message of the gospel. So that's what's coming up here. If you have questions about this, do not ask the staff. They don't know any, they can't answer any of your questions. Please ask Randy. I guarantee he can answer all your questions. He does a great job at it. Kindergarten. Miss Rose, my kindergarten teacher. I remember walking into that experience and... Um, Everything that I knew that was familiar changed. I, when I was at home, I knew what to expect. Um, I knew the ranking. I was the oldest of the siblings, so I knew what ranking I had. I knew where to get food. I knew when to eat. I knew what to expect from my parents, but suddenly everything changed. And Miss Rose was a sweet, wonderful person. She made life and, and school very enjoyable, made me want to come back the next day and the day after that and the day after that. Shortly, though, kindergarten finished, and I had to begin elementary school, and I started first grade. In first grade, my first grade teacher was a woman by the name of Mrs. Bates, not as nice as Miss Rose. She appeared to be about as old or older than my grandmother's, but she didn't have any of the wonderful qualities my grandmother has had. Um, uh, you know, she introduced me to torturous subjects like handwriting, which I was never very good in, and being in school all day. Um, but I spent the next seven years at this school, and as I spent those years at this school, I got to know classmates, and we moved up together, at least most of us did, you know, and, and I got to know the building, and I knew where the next grade was, so I knew when I'd come in the beginning of the new year, I knew where to go, I knew how lunch would happen, I knew how to get to and from school. It was all familiar, and I had it all figured out. And then my parents decided in eighth grade it was time to change schools again. And in the middle of middle school might be the worst possible time to change schools, but that's what they had me do. And um, everything new, once again, and the awkwardness of being a middle school who had no cool factor going in his favor. Unlike this guy who has no acne, his hair looks great, he's got designer clothes and the right backpack on, you know. I didn't know any of those things. But facing new and uncertain, I don't think there's any of anybody here, at least most of us here, don't like it. There's a few of you extroverts that really like anything new and different, but most of us don't like it. Why? Because Everything changes. Everything changes. From a new school to a new neighborhood to a new relationship, everything's going to change. And to a new job, we're going to ask ourselves the question, will I be accepted? Will I be liked? Will I fit in? And the truth is, sometimes these changes, we choose them. Like, you might choose to change a job. You might choose to move in a new community. But sometimes these changes are thrust upon you. Your company relocates you to another plant or to another location. Your parents move and you have to start, switch to a different school. Regardless, there's an awkward uncomfortableness that goes with all of that change. This morning, we're going to start a new series entitled Thriving in Babylon. Thriving in Babylon. You say, John, what, what, is this, what are you talking about, thriving in Babylon? Well, we're going to explore the stories in the Bible of a couple of individuals, uh, young men, who were relocated from their comfortable, safe setting that they knew everything and how it existed and how it functioned into a setting radically different. And as they got relocated into this new setting, they wondered where God was, and they wondered what in the world was going on, and they wondered how they were going to survive. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn to Daniel chapter 1, that's where we're going to be this morning. Daniel chapter 1, 
You can follow along on your phone or tablet as well. And today I want you to see this. I want you to see that when life gets turned upside down, God is actively involved. When life gets turned upside down, God is actively involved. Now, I don't know what you know about the story of Daniel, but you, you probably have some recollection of a guy in a lion's den. You may have heard that story somewhere along the way. Or, or him and a couple of his buddies caught in a fiery furnace. You may recall that story. And we're going to look at that story as well as a few more. But our challenge during this series is not to follow Daniel's example. You say, what do you mean, John? Shouldn't we follow the example of people in the Bible? Well, I doubt many if any of you are going to be uprooted from where you live, moved a thousand miles away, and indoctrinated by a foreign enemy for three years. Now, maybe if you're traveling in the Middle East and you get captured by ISIS and you end up in northern Syria, that might happen. But I doubt that's going to happen to any of us. So instead, I want us to, instead of trying to learn how to survive if you're thrown into a lion's den, or survive if you, got, you know, were in a fiery furnace, I want to ask this question. I want to ask the question, where is God when all that happens? Where is God when all that stuff takes place? And what in the world is He doing when this happens? Because we may never experience those same situations that Daniel and his friend experience, friends experience, but what I am confident is all of us will face things in life where our lives get turned upside down where our lives get turned upside down. And everything that was normal, everything that we expected, everything that we thought was going to happen the next day, it's turned upside down, and we have no idea what's coming next. No idea what's coming next. And the truth is, in those situations, that's when we ask ourselves a question, God, where are you? And God, what are you doing? Because it feels like my life just got turned upside down. And that's one of the main questions that gets answered in the book of Daniel. It's not the only question that gets answered, and the second question is really the title, and the title I took from a book by Larry Osborne, Thriving from Babylon, and Babylon was an ancient city. It's an ancient city in the, in the Near East, and, and it's a city that the Bible talks about. It's a city you can study in history, but Babylon represents something more than just an ancient city, because the name Babylon is used in the book of Revelation to describe everything that opposes God. Everything that disagrees with God, everything that's countercultural to what this says and what this talks about. And that's what Babylon represents. Values, choices, religion, relationships, way of life that is completely opposed to God. You say, what am I supposed to do when, I'm in, when I face that? What am I supposed to do when I encounter a situation or a way of life that's completely opposed to God? Should I elect politicians that only believe what I believe? Should I pick at businesses that do things that I oppose? Should I post rants on social media in opposition? Should I put signs in my yard about what I believe is wrong? Daniel was faced with these situations, and I would argue much worse than what we would ever face. And he not only survived in Babylon, but he thrived in Babylon. He not only survived, he thrived. And so the question for us to ask ourselves today is, what will it take for me, even if my situation is nowhere nearly as bad as his, for me to thrive in the setting that I'm in? In the setting that I'm in. And my suspicion is, no matter where you're at in your faith journey, you've wondered where God was when life became a mess, when it got turned upside down. 
when the pain felt so great you didn't know what to do with it? Everybody asked those questions. And if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, my hope and prayer is that in this series you will get a clear picture of the way God calls you to live when you're surrounded by people who live differently and believe differently than you do. I think most of us know that where we live, we're in a, we're in a bubble. If you don't know that, you are. I mean, we live in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. It's a bubble, you know. We don't face things that the rest of the world faces to the degree that they do. We don't face things even that the rest of our country faces. You know, the the joke among pastors in this area is the stuff that's happening on the West Coast, it'll get to us in about five to ten years, you know. It just takes a long, long time for it to get across the country. And so the reality is, is you might not experience that now, but the truth is you will experience it at some time if you haven't already and for sure in the near future. Because our culture and our world is not moving towards God, it's increasingly moving away from Him. And so how do we live out our faith in a world, in a community, in an occupation, maybe even in a family that completely opposes the God that you know and that you love? One of our values, one, our purpose here at CCC is to love God fully. And, and one of the things that you, for you to love someone or some thing, you have to know about it, and you have to decide, can I trust that person, that individual? And so my hope is in this series that you have a, you have a deepening trust of the God of the heavens, and you decide, I, he's worth trusting not only with some choices and decisions, but with my entire life, as you see that in the life of Daniel. And so if you're there in Daniel chapter 1, let's jump in and see what happens in this guy's life. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoi, of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Jehoiakim was the king of Judah, the southern part of the land of Israel. Um, I don't know how much you know about the geography and the history of that land, but to the south of the land of Israel is Egypt. And there was always powerful kingdoms in the land of Egypt. To the, north and to, the, to the north and to the west is what would be known as modern-day Iran and Iraq is where Babylon and Syria and other powerful nations existed. And they would constantly be coming through the land of Israel and trying to take occupation, trying to defeat them, trying to get them to team up with them so that they could expand their powers either from, coming from the north or coming from the south. And so Israel was often trapped in the middle. And so Jehoiakim was the king. He was attacked by Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 2, it says, The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Now, the first thing that stands out is that fourth word, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim. You see, the truth is, sometimes when life gets turned upside down, God is the reason God's the reason that life gets turned upside down. We say, what do you mean, John? Isn't God all about making my life better? Not really. Not really. You say, why is God sometimes the cause when life gets turned upside down? Why is God the cause when life sometimes gets turned upside down? This goes back a long ways in the history of the people of Israel. But in the very beginning, when God said to the people of Israel, if you will be my, if you will, I will be your God if you will be my people, God set up these guidelines like any king would for his people. He said, 
I will be your king, and I will provide for you. I will protect you. I will take care of you. And as long as you follow me, everything will go great. But if you reject me, if you turn away from me, you're going to be out on, my, you're going to be out on your own. And you know what? Some bad stuff is going to happen if you walk away from the protection, the oversight, and the provision that as your king I can offer to you. And so that was the arrangement that God set up. And the first couple books in the Old Testament are all the guidelines of how they were supposed to live in this arrangement. At the end of the book of Leviticus, God says, if you reject me, if you walk away from God, He says, your crops are going to be ruined. He said, and He says this, I will scatter you among the nations, draw my sword and pursue you. Those of you who are left will waste away in the lands of your enemy because of your sins, also because of your ancestors' sins. They will waste away. They will waste away. That was a long time ago. There's a long span between Leviticus and Daniel. But a little bit closer to Daniel is this other king by the name of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was a good guy. He was one of the few good kings. He followed after God and God blessed him. But somewhere along the way, one of the kings said, Hey, Hezekiah, how about we work together so that we can defeat these guys that are getting stronger down in the south? And so what Hezekiah did is he opened up the storerooms, and he showed the other king, this is what my treasures are, this is what I have to bring to the bargaining table. When you're considering a merger, what do you do? You bring your chips to the table. You say, this is what we have, what do you have? Let's see if we can work this out together. After Hezekiah did that, God said, Hezekiah, that was a horrible decision because you just demonstrated that you weren't willing to rely on me to take care of you. You had to make a political alliance with someone else. And so God said this in 2 Kings 20, verse 18, Some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And you know what we get reminded of here? We get reminded that your sin never happens in a bubble. Your sin never happens in a bubble. Now, I won't take a poll of you this morning, but how many of you are living with the sin of other people in your lives? Other people's selfishness. Other people's abuse, other people's prideful choices, parents' divorce. How many of you are living with the effects of that in your life today? Sin never is just in a bubble. It has an effect literally for generations. You say, but John, that's not fair. Unfortunately, it's not. A favorite statement of mine is that fairness ended in the Garden of Eden. I hate to tell you. It's a good one to use on your kids when they say it's not fair. Fairness ended in the Garden of Eden. Life's not fair. It's not fair. It's not. We live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that because someone else makes a bad choice, it can spill over into our lives and affect us. And that's the picture you get here. You get these stories of the people of Israel and Hezekiah, and they're choosing their own way, abandoning God's way, and the effect of that spills over into the lives of these young men, the most famous one being Daniel. And so what happened next to this guy? What happened next to Daniel? Well, the king ordered Asphenaz, this is the king of Babylon, chief of court, to bring in the king's service some of the Israelites and the royal family and nobility. He said, I want you to pluck out the best and the brightest. He goes on to describe them in verse 4. He says, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. So he says, I want this, the good-looking guys, the smart guys, 
the guys that can figure all this out, he said, I want you to bring them into the palace and I want to teach them the literature and language. Why was he doing this? Well, because as Babylon would get bigger to expand, their, expand the reach of their nation, as they would conquer other nations, they would, they would strip that nation of the best and brightest, bring them back to Babylon, indoctrinate them, or hope that they became enamored with the base of Babylon so that they could send them either back to their homeland or into another place to follow out the purposes and the mission of this Babylonian kingdom. The artwork in that day pictured them as well-muscled, fully-bearded, curly-haired warriors. So any of you that are 18 to 22-year-old guys that fit that category, you know who you are, you know. You know who you are. You say, could they really do that? Yeah, they could. I mean, they would indoctrinate them in the history and the language and the economics and the religion and also in divination, the use of astrology, which you're going to see in the next couple weeks. Um, I want to ask you this morning, but how many of you when you were 18 years old either went away to a college or went in the military and you came back a few years and you were a different person? Happened to me happened to me. And that's what's happening to these young men. So their, where they lived was changed. Their culture was changed. What else got changed? Here's another thing that got changed. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were under the king's service. Their food, their diet also got changed. What else got changed? Verse 6 and 7, among those who were chosen were some from Judah, and here's some of the guys, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. Their names got changed. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. The goal was to remove their identity and all association with their former life. Our names give us a sense of our identity. They're who we are. If you hear your name called in a room, even if there's someone else in the room with the same name that they're talking to, you turn your head and say, what? Because your name is your identity. And he was stripping these individuals, these young men of their identity. Daniel means God is my judge. And his name was changed to Belteshazzar. Bel, which is from the, the, the gods that they would worship, Baal, means may, God, may a God protect his life. He said, I hope there's someone out there. Is there some God that's going to take care of you? That's what his name was changed to. Lastly, but not unmentioned, is that they likely were forced to become eunuchs. You say, how do you know that, John? In Isaiah 39, 7, it says this, part of this prophecy, some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood will be born to you, will be taken away, they'll become eunuchs in the palace, the king of Babylon. You say, why did the king do that? Well, think about it for a moment with me. If you're a king and you've got a harem full of beautiful women and you're bringing the best and the brightest, the most handsome, the most good-looking 18 to 22-year-olds into your palace, I think you want to take away every desire that they have, right? Any temptation, any struggle. And so they literally lost their masculinity is what happened to them. And so Daniel and his friends, they lost their culture, they lost their homeland, they lost the food that they knew and were used to, they lost their names, and they lost their masculinity. And so what did Daniel do? What did Daniel do? It's interesting what he didn't do. He didn't resist the educational focus. He didn't say, you know, guys, why don't we just flunk out? Let's just flunk out, and then they'll say, oh, these, are a bunch, these guys, they don't have it figured out, and they'll just send them home. They'll just send them home. Maybe, why? 
Daniel didn't do that. He, he didn't resist the name change. He didn't say, guys, let's, okay, when they call us our names in public, we'll do it, but in private, we're going to use our real names so we don't lose our identity. We don't want to lose the fact that we're Jews and where we're from. We don't want to lose that identity. He didn't resist that. He likely couldn't resist his manhood being taken. He couldn't do anything about where he was living. But what he chose to resist was the food element. The food element. It's kind of an odd one, isn't it? Isn't it? He, he could resist all these others, but he chose to eliminate the food element. Let's look at how the story goes. In verse 8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself. He said, I don't want to eat and drink this stuff. But God showed up again. Verse 9, now God had caused, same word as gave in the previous verse where, where God showed up, the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. So God was going to help this guy give Daniel some kind of favor. But then look in the next verse. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid the king has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse? The king would then have my head. It's really confusing, isn't it? I mean, the, the text says that God showed, God showed favor by getting this official to show, 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 cause the official to show favor. And then the guy didn't do it. So what was Daniel going to do? Daniel said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over them, test your servants for 10 days, give us nothing but vegetables to eat and drink. And he finally got someone to agree to it. And then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed and he tested them for 10 days. And I think the thing that stands out to me is when life gets turned upside down, God shows up in small ways. God shows up in small ways. God didn't rescue these guys from where they were at and bring them back home. He didn't somehow change the, the fact that, okay, guys, you can keep your names. He, he didn't do that. Okay, you can hold on to your mask. He didn't do any of those things. The only thing God did is God allowed one official to let him modify their diet. Modify their diet. Why did he choose that? Some people have suggested, well, he was a Jew and he had certain dietary restrictions and he could only eat these things and he couldn't eat those things. And maybe that's the reason that Daniel chose that. But Daniel still ate the veggies, so he didn't eliminate everything that was there. One writer I read suggested this. They said, once these men were done at the end of three years, everything about them would be Babylonian. And they would have been created to be like this by the Babylonians. The only thing that Daniel could hold on to is he could change his diet. And he could change his diet. And maybe that would give him a sense of holding on to something that his God did. His God did. Because who changed the mind of the officials? Did Daniel change the mind of the officials? No. It was God who changed the mind of the officials. And so even though everything about Daniel's situation didn't change, there's one slight thing that changed. He said, maybe I can hold on to that, and that will give me a sense that God's still here somewhere. I can't see him. I can't figure it out. I can't make sense of it. But somehow God is here. In my own journey, as I've walked back and looked at some very painful things that have happened in my life, one of the things that I often find myself wondering is, God, where are you? God, where are you? I, I, I can't see you. I don't remember you being there. Why, why did you let this happen, God? You could have stopped this. You could have interrupted it. Why? Why? 
And I sit with it, and I plead with God, and I sit with it, and I wrestle with God. And the amazing thing to me is God has allowed me in several of these situations as I've gone back and looked at them to give me a glimpse of where God was in a way I couldn't see Him then that I get a glimpse now. I get a glimpse that God showed up in this way. God showed up in this way. God didn't do this, John, which is what maybe you thought He should have done, but God protected this part of your soul in the midst of that painful experience. And I would challenge you, as you think about the difficult things in your life and the painful things in your life, if you have this sense of God left me all alone, God hung me out to dry, He's nowhere around when this happened, I would challenge you to go back and revisit that again and say, God, where were you? And sit in the pain and the confusion and the anger and the futility of that and say, God, where were you? Because if I am going to believe that you never leave me and you never abandon me, somehow I have to find you in that painful place in my life. Where are you, God? Where are you? In all of this horrific stuff that happened to Daniel, God showed up in this little tiny detail of getting this one official to give him the green light to change his diet. A very, very small way. A very, very small way. But what was the result? What was the result? Look in verse 15. At the end of 10 days, these guys look better than anybody else, healthier and more nourished. I don't know where they got their protein from, but somehow it was doing the trick. Somehow it was doing the trick. So the guard said, all right, we're taking it away for the next three years. All they had was veggies and water for the next three years. And what did God choose to do then? Well, when life gets turned upside down, sometimes God turns it around. In the end, God turns it around. How does God do that in Daniel's story? Well, look in verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams. I mean, these guys figured it out. These Jewish men, they, they figured it out. They understood it all. They knew it all. They passed all the tests. They came through with flying colors. Verse 18, at the end of the time, the king brought them in, or the chief official brought them in to Nebuchadnezzar, and look what happened. The king talked with him, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah as they entered the king's service. These guys were at the top of the class. One, two, three, and four, Daniel and his buddies, ahead of everybody else. But not only were they at the top of the class of these guys that had been captured and were, were being put into the king's service, but look at the next verse. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Ten times better than all the seasoned guys who had been doing this for years, the guys who had been part of their lives for decades, the guys that were in charge of interpreting all the dreams. Ten times better. You know what it's like when you start a new job, right? You're the rookie. You're at the bottom of the totem pole, right? Everybody knows more than you do. After three years of training, they were ten times better than everyone. Than everyone. And I would suggest to you that God showed up in a very, very big way in spite 
of their world being turned upside down, in spite of their world being turned upside down. So the point of this story is not to go on the Daniel diet. If you want to, knock yourself out. I'm not joining you. I'm just letting you know that. (laughs) Knock yourself out. I could shed a few. I'm trying, but I'm not doing that one. The point of this story is that when life gets turned upside down and you can't figure out where God is, you can't figure out what God's doing, that He's still active and present in your life, and there is coming a day when He will turn it around. Daniel never went back home. He never went back home. It's not part of God's plan for him. And so when God turns your life back, when God turns your life upside down, the thing that you and I want most is to say, God, can you just take it back? Fix it. Take it back to the way it was. Please, please. But that's rarely ever God's plan for us. For some of you, maybe being here at CCC is part of that journey for you. Life doesn't make any sense. You can't figure out this relational thing. And now parenting is thrown into the mix, and that makes it even worse. And there's no satisfaction in your job, and you're trying to figure out how to make life work, and maybe, maybe I need a little more God in my life to make it work. And I hope that these next few weeks, that you come back and you continue to see that there is a God that's alive And there's a God that's present, and there's a God that's going to be with you no matter what your journey of life looks like. Students, maybe your life feels like it's been turned upside down. Can't get along with parents. School's torture. But the truth is, God is actively involved in your life. Maybe parents, you're on the other side of that struggle, on the other side of that equation, and... um, You feel disconnected from your kid. You're at odds with one another. The truth is God is actively involved in your life. Maybe you're a young adult and you're trying to find your way. You don't fit at home. You don't want to be at home. You're trying to find a meaningful relationship. You want to honor God with your life. The truth is God is actively involved in your life. Maybe you're separated, divorced, a relationship that meant the world to you has ended and the person that you loved is gone and your heart is ripped out, the truth is God is actively involved in your life. Maybe you got a diagnosis from the doctor, words you hoped you'd never hear, surgery, treatment, life about to change drastically. God is actively a part of your life. And my prayer for you is that when life gets turned upside down and you wonder where God is, that you'll be able to hold tightly to the truth that God is actively a part of your life. We bow your heads with prayer with me as we close. God... None of us wants to have life turned upside down. We all want life to go smooth and easy. Um, But the truth is, if we're honest, we know life doesn't work that way. Um, And so, God, when we find ourselves in these situations, we wonder where you are, we wonder what you're doing. 
We wonder why you don't take things back to the way things were. But God, you never do that. You didn't do it in Daniel's life. You didn't do it in our lives. Lord, I pray for those that are in that right now. I pray that you might show up in just small ways with a glimpse and a reminder that God is still at work here. You're still present. Lord, give all of us the hope and the confidence that whether it's going back and looking at stories in our past, whether it's living in our present, that we deeply hold to this truth that you are here, you are with us, you never leave us, and that you are actively involved in our lives and in our stories. Help us to